You guys know it's been a couple of weeks since I've been here, and I really have genuinely missed worshiping with you guys. I uh, did a vow renewal ceremony for someone in the church yesterday, and it was like, oh, it feels so good to just be back with some of the people from Blue Ocean. I was sick two weekends ago. I was supposed to be camping, but I got, um, I got a little food poisoning. And then last weekend, Rachel and I were in Minnesota up just visiting her family for the 4th of July. They've got a cabin up there, and so we're there at the cabin with like 40 of her extended family, and um, it's fun. I think we both had to do a little recovering when we got back because there were so many people. But that week I was supposed to be camping a couple of Sundays ago, you know, I got struck by this severe case of food poisoning and it turned out the culprit was a little bacteria called Campylobacter. And it took me down for an entire week. I mean, it was a really bad one. And we're still not positive what caused it. The person from the Washtenaw County Public Health Department called me and had me go through everything I'd eaten for the last two weeks. And we think the culprit may have been some raw milk cheese that was on a sandwich I had when I went out. So I'm, I'm avoiding raw milk like the plague. But I got really sick and Rach was great. She ended up taking a couple of days off to care for me, which was good because at one point I had to go to the ER pretty suddenly when I was at my worst. So I'm getting dehydrated or getting rehydrated and I wasn't going to tell this story, but since we just had the Blue Ocean Sharks thing, I was so sick. Like I hadn't brushed my hair in two or three days or my teeth. I had 104 fever. I was in my PJs. I mean, I was barely functioning. I could hardly walk when I was like yelling outside, Rachel, I need to go in. I need to go. And so I had no energy to grab anything except I grabbed my Blue Ocean Sharks cap, that rainbow shark cap. And I'm telling you, as I was laying in the ER, like they sent me right back. They got me hooked up to an IV right away. And I mean, I could, I was so listless and I looked, I looked like a hungover trucker, but I was there <laughs> in my shark's cap, feeling the pride and the love of blue ocean. And Rachel's like, let me get your picture. And I was like, no, <laughs> now I kind of wish I'd let her. Cause I mean, that would have been, it was bad. So it took my body a pretty long time to recover. I'm still not quite there. But maybe some of you guys are like me, but sitting around the house too long, just not being able to do much of anything, especially when you can't do much of anything, man, it was driving me nuts in the summer weather. You know, I was like going outside and trying to weed a little bit just to do something, because there's only so much Netflix you can take. And I was just thinking and reflecting when I was sitting outside, I was like, gosh, it seems like it's really hard for me at this point in my life to allow myself to rest and to slow down and to heal. And I just keep wanting to push it. And I think part of that is me and my personality. And part of that's the culture that we live in. You know, when I lived in Asia for four years, I was there from 2007 to 11. And when I moved back to the U.S., I remember feeling the significant difference in the amount of anxiety that I experienced in everyday life. And that was especially anxiety that was driven by constantly having to like do things or get things done or run errands. Because life moves at a slower pace in many parts of the world. And I was finding that it was actually better for both my physical as well as my mental health to experience more of that space in my life because time is regarded a little bit differently. There's not the same pressure when you're out in Western China to do things like show up on time, which my wife knows that like suits me very well. <laughs> you can kind of take your time. You get there when you get there. You don't pack in a million events into your week. Um, and events that they did have tended to focus a little bit closer to home on family and friends and gatherings with people nearby. And so in the evenings, you know, everybody there lives in apartment buildings for the most part. And those apartment complexes are called shaochus. They're like little villages. So in every little shaochu, 
it would be built around these different squares, these kind of communal squares and different places where the kids could come play and badminton um, nets and things. And so every time the weather was really nice, everybody would just pour out of the shalchus in the evening and somebody would start some music and you knew that was the, the time to start gathering around to dance. And so we'd form these big circles and so we'd do a lot of Tibetan dancing out where I was, which was pretty easy, which is good because I'm a terrible dancer, you know, so you kind of figure it out and you watch people and so everybody's out there dancing and singing and the older people bring out mahjong, so they're playing mahjong and they've maybe got little stools they're watching. Sometimes there were people down the street that would bring out their arhus, which is like a, a stringed instrument that they have in China that has like a bow. So it's like a smaller instrument with a bow and because I, I played the violin through college, I thought, oh, I could probably pick that up. So I went and I tried some, oh, it is so hard. Like there is such a technique to that bowing that when somebody does it really well, there's something just like really moving and beautiful about it. So people would gather around and listen to the arhu and just talk. And these were like these lovely neighborly spaces where we could regularly enjoy life together without having to like get in a car and go somewhere. So when I came back to Michigan, I remember feeling overwhelmed by the number of like, activities and errands, and it made me feel like I always had to be like, on the run. And I thought, gosh, if I had kids, that would probably be multiplied by about 10. And eventually I readapted to our culture. You know, there's a lot that I love about American culture and appreciate about it from living abroad. But there are some things about Chinese and Tibetan cultures, and some of that is the built-in rest and the built-in connection that we have with our neighbors. So I thought that since I've been sort of personally feeling the need for like purposeful rest and also feeling a little bit of resistance to purposeful rest, especially when it feels forced, like being sick, that we'd just do a short sermon series on the Sabbath. And really it's more on like savoring life, right? It's on the spiritual framework for allowing ourselves to slow down, to enjoy the world around us, to meaningfully connect with our loved ones and our neighbors, and even delve into hobbies that revive us especially as some of us are like going up north on the weekends. Like I'm looking at like Tim who's got a cabin up there or going fishing or camping on the weekends and really being able to do so, like to rest and refresh in that purposefully and with freedom from the forces that sort of drive us to feel anxious about work. So most of us know that the idea of a Sabbath originates in the Bible in the very first story about the creation of the world, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and on the first day he divided light from dark, and on the second day, the waters from the sky. And then you get to the seventh day, and we're told that God's presence rested in the earth temple that he had created. Right? So this short introduction to the entire biblical narrative institutes this idea that resting is part of how creation functions best. Right? So the Hebrew people didn't really seem to embrace this view of life for themselves, for some hundreds of years after that story was originated, was passed down through oral tradition, this creation story. It wasn't really until after the Hebrew people had been freed from slavery in Egypt that they adopted a lifestyle that included a day of rest as a part of their normal work week. So have any of you guys seen the movie, The Prince of Egypt? You know, it's a little bit old now. I thought maybe some of the middle schoolers, that was probably a good one, yeah. Got so I remember um, watching that and thinking it was actually a pretty accurate portrayal of the early biblical story in the book of um, Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible. And that story tells us that the Hebrew people had been taken slaves into the land of Egypt. And I'm just going to go through and tell a little bit of that story. So the Hebrew people were there in Egypt and were told that they were beholden to the Pharaoh, you know, the big Pharaoh of Egypt, for both their life as well as their sustenance. 
And this Pharaoh worked them relentlessly. He was forcing the Hebrew slaves to make bricks out of mud and out of straw in order for them to build more storehouses for the Egyptian empire. And so some historians think that maybe the Hebrew slaves might have helped to build the pyramids and some of the other big structures of Egypt, but that's debatable, like the timeline's a little debatable. But regardless, the stories say that they were forced into a really hard physical labor seven days a week without any kind of break. And so one day, a man named Moses, he had run away from Egypt and he was tending a bunch of animals out in the western part of what's now today Saudi Arabia. So he was out in Midian. And so he's out there with all of his animals, probably goats, maybe some sheep, when all of a sudden he sees a bush that's on fire. Only that bush doesn't seem to be burning up. So he goes over to it and he hears this voice. And the voice says, Moses, Moses. He says, here I am. And then the voice says, don't come any closer. Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. I want you to know that I'm the God of your fathers. I am the God of your ancestors, of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And so we're told that Moses hid his face because he didn't want to look at this God. He was scared. And so then God says this in Exodus 2. He says, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them. I've heard them crying out because of the slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. It's a God who hears and is concerned. He said, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, and I've come to bring them to a land where there's good and uh, good land. It's spacious land. So go. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to tell him to let my people go. Right, so Moses, he takes his brother Aaron, and he goes to Egypt, and he's actually able to get an audience with the Pharaoh. So long story short, he had actually grown up like a son of the Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses had some connections in with the royal family. So he's able to get an audience with the Pharaoh. And so he goes there. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read quite a bit of Exodus chapter 5. And this is the account where Moses and his brother are in a conversation with the Pharaoh. And I want you to do, what I'd like you to do as I read part of this and summarize part of it, is just notice Pharaoh's fixation on work, on quotas, and on just wringing the most out of his slaves. So Exodus 5, it says, Moses and Aaron, they went to the Pharaoh and they said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they can go and hold a festival in my name. And so the Pharaoh responds, as you might expect him to, he says, well, who is this Lord? Like, why should I obey him? Why would I let you go out there into the wilderness? So Moses and Aaron, they said, well, this God of the Hebrews, he met with us. So please, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness so we can go and worship. But the king of Egypt said, he said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Look, the people of the land, they're now numerous. In fact, some, some historians think it may have been up to two million people. And you're stopping them from working. So that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the overseers, right? So he calls in, like if he's like the president or vice president or CEO, he calls in his directors and his managers. And he says, you're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, ooh, let us go sacrifice to our God in the wilderness. So what we've got to do is we've got to make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and they pay no attention to these ideas of going off and resting. And as I read that, I thought, oh, we kind of know this dynamic, some of us, don't we? Right? You have a company that says, okay, 
we're going to lay off a whole bunch of people, but we're still going to expect the same amount of work to get accomplished by those who are remaining there. Yeah, I remember years ago, I worked for a company, a Fortune 500 company that did that. And I remember it was like super demoralizing for the employees who were left. So I'm imagining um, that could be going on maybe in some departments at Ford right now. I don't know. I, I know they've been laying some people off. And as I read this, I was just like, gosh, there really is nothing new under the sun, right? That there's this dynamic of people who maybe have vast wealth or power who so often don't care how hard they drive their employees or their slaves in the case of the Egyptians and in the case of our country for more than 200 years of our own history of legalized slavery. Right, so after Pharaoh gave these orders to his managers to up the ante, it says that the slave drivers and the overseers, they went out and they said to the people, okay, this is what the Pharaoh says. I'm not gonna give you any more straw. So you've gotta go and you've gotta get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work is not gonna be reduced at all. So it says the people, they scattered all over Egypt to try and gather stubble to use for straw. Right, so now we see in their free time, people have to do extra work just to make their regular work week manageable. And I don't wanna seem like I'm comparing like paid dignified work in the US to slavery because it's not, but I thought even non-slave workers today find themselves having more and more put upon them just to make their regular jobs function. You know, it reminded me of my, my youngest sister, Lindsay, who's a teacher, of teachers who have to stay up until like 11 p.m. grading papers because there's just not any time to do it, or else they have to go out and buy their own materials, their classroom materials on their own time and dime. Right, so that's not as dehumanizing and humiliating as forcing slaves to work even harder, but there are still like, you know, shades that we understand of workers being taken advantage of. And so we're told that the slave drivers in Egypt, they kept pressing them, they kept pressing the, the slaves, complete the work required of you each day, just like when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers, they beat the Israeli overseers that they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as you had before? So what's going on here is like, you've got Pharaoh at the top, you've got his Egyptian directors, and then they've appointed like, you know, they've got their slaves down here. They've appointed some of the Israelite slaves as sort of managers, right? So they're kind of two layers of middle managers here. And so you've got the Egyptian managers going to the Hebrew managers and saying, come on, what gives? You've got to get your people to continue to produce. And then the Israelite overseers, those lower managers who were Hebrews, they went themselves, they skipped those, those directors and they went directly to the Pharaoh and they appealed to him. And I just thought, poor middle managers. And they thought, they said, why have you treated your servants this way? Like, look, you've given us no straw. You've given us absolutely no resources to get done what we're supposed to get done, and yet we're told, make bricks. And your servants, they're being beaten, but the fault, it's with your own people. You're not giving us the tools that we need to do the job you're asking us to do. And Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are. You're lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and worship the Lord. Now get to work. You're not going to be given any straw, but you still have to produce your full quota of bricks. So these Israelite overseers, this is they realized they were in trouble when they were told you're not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. So when they left the Pharaoh, they went and they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, look, may the Lord look at you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to the Pharaoh. And his officials, they put a sword in our hands to kill us. In other words, you're telling us that we need to go and stand up for ourselves, but all that's gotten us is a risk of being killed. Right, standing up for the powerful and asking them to stand up to the powerful has now made Moses look bad. 
You know, they're a little bit like, thanks a million for that. So Moses goes back to the Lord and he says, why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since, I went, ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on his people, and yet you still have not rescued your people at all. Right, so the story goes on for quite a few chapters, and God does eventually rescue the people, but I wanted to focus on this part of the story because I think it gives us a sense of the obsession that the Pharaoh had with production and with work and with quotas and the very little regard that he had for people's lives for their rest, for their rejuvenation, for their family time, for their time with their neighbors, for their time to go and worship God together, right? The time that humans need to be able to thrive. So once the people had eventually escaped Egypt and they're out and they're meandering in the deserts of the Near East on the way to the Promised Land, they had to reorganize. And so they instituted laws and new ways of living so that they could organize their, their new community. And so in one of the stories, Moses goes up onto a mountain where it said that God gave him the Ten Commandments, which we're all familiar with on some form, I'm sure. And these are commandments that theologians note, they divide into really two categories. The Ten Commandments are about loving God, and they're about loving your neighbors. And so for the first three commandments that are given are really about relating to God. Like, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not take God's name in vain. Right? These are ways that we're relating to this God. Then the fourth commandment that's kind of squeezed in there is about resting. It's about keeping a Sabbath rest day. And then the rest of them are about how to relate to other people, how to treat humans respectfully, right? Don't steal from each other. Don't envy each other. Honor your parents. Don't speak falsely about your neighbor. Don't sleep with your neighbor's spouse, right? These are like kind of basic tenets of helping create stable communities and families and how we relate to the people around us. But that fourth commandment about resting is intriguing because it's sort of a transition commandment, right? It contains a directive that's new in recorded history because it enshrines rest into the work week. And it helps humans think about time and about rest as sacred. So perhaps we can imagine the surprise that people had in hearing that commandment, right? These are people who had come from generations of slavery generation after generation after generation, where they're worked seven days a week, all day. There is no rest. Who rests? What is that? That's for the wealthy, for the powerful. So Exodus 20, this is the, the actual commandment that God gives. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but that seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, not your animals, not any foreigner residing in your town. In other words, there is no class of people in your community that you should make work and wait on you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed that Sabbath day and made it holy. So this commandment of all of the ten is actually the wordiest one. It's the one that God spent the most time spelling out for people. Right, the, the commandment wedged between loving God and loving our neighbors, I think is perhaps an indication that without it, we can't really transition from loving and honoring God to embracing our fellow humans. Because there had been no rest in Egypt. Right? Work never stopped. The Pharaoh worked nonstop. He's directing his subordinate managers. Those managers are working nonstop, directing their managers. They're driving the slaves under them. They're beating each other to make this work. And they're feeling all of this pressure from above to deliver results. 
So even having to give up some of those precious hours, the slaves were like all encompassed by work in their lives. And they were having to go out and look for straw so they wouldn't get pummeled. And all of this was happening to manufacture bricks, right? Ever more bricks to store ever more goods in a land that was already overflowing with wealth in the region. This frantic productivity was what was driving the Egyptian empirical machine. And I thought you might notice maybe some little hints of some parallels in our culture. So then in that one commandment that's given to the people, to these former slaves on the mountain, God abolished that way of relating to a work system of anxious, humanity-depleting production. Right, so instead of like the forced pervasion of work throughout their lives, the Hebrew people were instead invited into this awareness that life doesn't consist only of feverish consumption and manufacturing and production, that life shouldn't reduce humans to cogs in an economic system to be driven harshly for the benefit of the wealthy. Instead, God's saying, work is to stop completely one day a week, and you're to redeploy your energy to your neighbors, to those around you in your lives, you allow your body's time to relax and your mind time to process, your family's time to connect, and your community time to worship together. One of my favorite theologians, Walter Brueggemann, he said, the odd insistence of the God of Sinai is to counter anxious productivity with committed neighborliness. And I might even add to that committed self-care. So there are a couple of things that strike me when we consider that Exodus story here. And the first one is, is that there are people in our community, in Ann Arbor and Ipsy and Dexter and Chelsea and Celine and all the places we come from, Dearborn, who are living as if they're in Egypt and not even by choice. You know, there are people even in our church community having to work multiple jobs just to get by. And I've looked, the living wage in Washtenaw County is $15 an hour and a lot of people do not make that. So I think part of our spiritual framework needs to embrace... Um, so the spiritual and physical necessity of rest for people to be built into our systems. Because not only does it harm them when they're not able to rest, but it does harm to our communities, right? Since these overworked humans, they don't have the time and the energy to turn outwards, to be able to really be involved and to, to give what they're able to give in this space. But the second thing is that some of us find ourselves in jobs where I think we, find, we feel constant pressure to perform. And that that pressure, it spills out into our personal lives. Now, some of you, I know you've probably, like, you've got a work-life balance, and that's really great, but I think it's really hard in our culture. And sometimes that's because there's the very real threat of losing a job. And sometimes it's because we kind of get sucked into this system that makes us feel like we're always behind. You know, so when we have the power to do so, it's healthy to be able to, like, put the email down, disconnect from that Excel spreadsheet, Oh man, I loved Excel spreadsheets when I worked in business. You know, put down your lesson planning, put down your studying. And I actually consider a spiritual discipline to unplug and to release ourselves from feeling guilty for not working. Because in our culture, I think we try and take two days to rest when we can. And I know I personally struggle to do that sometimes. And I have to remind myself that I'm a better person, I'm a better spouse, I'm a better pastor, I'm a better friend when I'm able to really fully embrace days off and to embrace vacations. Because it's so easy to, you know, to just sort of check in to make sure things are running smoothly. And one of my oldest friends is a, a top business executive. And I remember, I, I lived with her for a time, and I remember watching her um, work seven days a week, all the time, and she would stay up oftentimes past midnight working. And some of that's being female, 
and being in the executive world, like there's this feeling that you kind of have to prove yourself. But what I observed was that it also felt like it created anxiety in her underlings, that it creates anxiety with people under you when bosses send emails to employees at 3 a.m. or on a Sunday afternoon. Right, so I would say if you're a leader, there is a certain amount of anxiety about work that you can communicate if you're not willing to disconnect yourself. Right, that no matter how much responsibility we have, that that's part of leadership, is being able to put work down so that you don't create more anxiety in a system. You know, when I worked at Borders corporate office 15 years ago, I remember there was a, a sort of company culture where it felt like a lot of people believed that not taking sick time and vacation days should be held like a badge of honor. You know, like, look, I'm more hardcore, I'm more committed to the company than any of you, I should get promoted. But it always felt kind of counterproductive to me. And it felt like it was not only hurting the company, but it was just hurting the people who were in it. Like, that doesn't do anyone any good. So I read an article a couple of weeks back, which I couldn't refind. I think it was in The Atlantic. But I found it personally helpful. And it was talking about how since Americans are so often so it's either overworked or we've got so many activities that we're going to, that when we actually are able to be home, it's so easy to just want to check out, right? To watch Netflix, to surf the net, to play video games. I am as guilty as anyone else. And all of those things are fine to do now and again, but it was just saying that in the grand scheme of life, when they've started studying people over the long term, they found that what really rejuvenates and refreshes people is when we're able to spend quite a bit of our free time pursuing hobbies and pursuing connections with others. Right, that we actually find fulfillment with gaining new skills that make us happy. You know, like Rachel gardening, and she's taken up mushroom growing, and so I'm trying out some of my own things. I've been personally, after reading that article, trying to reorient parts of my life so that I can spend more time on things that bring me joy. I mean, there was this one video game, I don't know how many of you guys are gamers, but there was this one called Blaze Blue, and it was this Japanese anime fighting game, and I mean, I loved it, I was so good at it. I mean, I knew like everybody else playing it was probably like 22-year-old guys in college or something, but I was awesome. So, <laughs> but I was like, you know, I'm like starting to spend like an hour a day on this thing. That is not how I want to live my life. That's not how Rachel wants me to live my life. So I just deleted the thing. I was like, I need to spend more of my life reading and doing things that bring me joy. And that actually helps me to be a better spouse, to be a better pastor, all of those things. And as I was writing this, I was reminded a little bit of like Carrie Middaw and her and Daryl's two daughters. I told Abby I was going to say this. Abby and Josie, they wrote a book that they called Screen-Free Summer, Endless Ideas to Get Kids Off the Device and Into the Season. I thought not only is that a helpful tool for parents, but when I actually saw it on Carrie's, I think I saw it on your Facebook page at first when she was sort of promoting it. And my first thought was like, what a prophetic book. You know, because in a way, like that's what we need tools sometimes, I think, to counter the forces in our culture that are telling us to just work, be productive, be anxious, and then check out, right? And this is actually a tool that says, no, that's not what it means to, to thrive or to be most human. Like, here's some tools that you can try to help you play and explore and really refresh yourself with others so that we can be, you know, better, better neighbors, better in our community. And when I think about Sabbath keeping, I just think like, you know, we don't have to be rigid about it. I think the Jewish um, people are, Jewish communities are best probably at it, but there's a whole lot of communal like support and report over taking these 24 hours and really not working. Like when I, when I lived in Jerusalem 
I mean, the, the Jewish part of Jerusalem just shuts down on Saturday. There is nothing going on over there. And I think, you know, we just have to adapt it to our own culture. We have to be able to adapt our resting time so that it works for our families and our work schedules. And I know that if you're working like two jobs and you're really just trying to make it work, sometimes that means just carving out maybe two hours without feeling guilty about not doing something around the house. Like just taking like an hour or two in the week as a start to do something that really brings you joy. So I say all this to just say enjoy your weekends off, enjoy your vacations, let's turn off our cell phones, let's turn off our computers, and when we do it, we can do it as unto God. Right? And when we do it, we can practice the spiritual discipline of rest and relaxation so that we're better attuned to ourselves and each other and the world around us, that there's a sacredness to rest that we can embrace. All right. I know at the end of every, every sermon here, we, we tend to like to do either a guided meditation or a couple of minutes of silence. And so what I thought we would do, you, you don't have to, but you're welcome to do this, is maybe just get comfortable and just start with some just silence. And as you're sort of getting your mind, you know, wound down, trying to release some of the anxiety of things going on, maybe just find a place in your mind, a place that makes you feel relaxed. Maybe it's your garden. Maybe it's the beach. But just find that place and breathe and allow yourself to just sort of be. continue in that space or if you'd like you can imagine yourself holding your hands out and if you're finding that you're feeling a lot of anxiety in your life about finances or about work just maybe think about picturing those things in your hands whatever that looks like to you and just presenting them to God and just saying okay God I need you to turn your face toward these things that are causing me anxiety pray a prayer of just help and release and then I'm going to just in that space that same space I'm just going to read out some words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount so let me start by saying Lord the things that cause us anxiety about our work about our finances about our kids all of those things in life Lord, that keep us from feeling like we can fully breathe and relax 
I know I sometimes don't know what to do about them, and I just ask that you would turn your face toward those things, that you would pay attention to those things, that you would help bring some relief and some release in life for those things. You know, I would actively like to release some of those things to you. I'm going to speak the words of Jesus over us in that space. You can continue to be in that place that makes you feel peaceful. From the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store anything in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothing? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans, they run after all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Lord, may we embrace the peace of the Prince of Peace. May you give us that peace that passes understanding by the power of your spirit this week, Lord, that we would be able to find refreshment and rejuvenation as we're weeding our gardens and fishing and doing all of these things in this glorious earth playground that you have given us, this earth temple of the creator. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.